0: We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are words from the Declaration of Independence put forward by the 13 States of America on July 4th, 1776. And these are words written by Thomas Jefferson. This is the third episode of Presidential.
1: shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A state which will live in infamy.
0: As you'll hear from the historians in this episode who have spent their careers studying Thomas Jefferson, the topics we could explore today are just about endless. He played a pivotal role in shaping America's approach to religious freedom, personal liberty, art, food, science, race relations. I asked a number of experts this question. What are three things that we absolutely should know about Thomas Jefferson? Just about all of them gave the same answer, number one, that the Louisiana Purchase happened during his presidency, number two, that he was the main author of the Declaration of Independence, and number three, that despite penning the words, all men are created equal, he owned hundreds of slaves at his Virginia home, Monticello. That contradiction between his words and his actions sits at the heart of his complex legacy today. And that's why many of the guests on this episode say they continue to study Jefferson, because his big contradiction is America's big contradiction. Namely, that we believe in liberty and equality, but have wrestled throughout our country's history with how to live out that ideal. So let's start with a better picture of him. Here's John Meacham, who wrote the best-selling Jefferson biography, The Art of Power.
2: Well, Thomas Jefferson was tall, sandy-haired, uh, his skin freckled in the sun. Uh, people disagreed about what color eyes he had. They appeared, uh, they, were, they were described differently. Uh, he was somewhat awkward physically, was a big man. Conversationally, he would never have challenged you uh he disliked conflict uh he o- always wanted to find areas of agreement uh areas of mutual enjoyment as opposed to uh disagreement and w- was a i think in many ways the founding father who charms us most. He was a gourmand he was an architect he was a writer he was a scientist you know he he was a politician he had a vor- voracious appetite for Information for anything new. Um, he loved fine things. He, you know, he he died very much in debt because of he was wanted the best of everything. So, if you were walking into the president's house in Washington or Monticello, uh, you would find a remarkably confident, amenable, and amiable host.
0: Jefferson was born in 1743, and he grows up in Virginia. His father dies when he's a young teenager, but his family was fairly well off, and he eventually inherits the land that will become Monticello. He's very intellectual, and he's very well educated. He goes on to study law, and then by 1776, he's part of the small group who are charged with writing the Declaration of Independence. And Jefferson is essentially the main person who drafts the whole thing.
2: I think he wanted to play a large role in the largest of possible stages. I think his father had been a big, uh, significant man, Peter Jefferson, had been a surveyor and an explorer and someone that the people looked up to. And I think Jefferson, who was the eldest son, was born with a sense that he was to participate in the public affairs of the then the colony, what was later the Commonwealth, later the nation. He had an endless appetite for affection, applause, adulation, you know, uh, like most political people, you know, for that matter, like most people.
0: Though he's charismatic in small social settings, Jefferson doesn't like public speaking the way John Adams did. He's much more comfortable and eloquent as a writer.
2: Jefferson was not a speechmaker. Uh, he was a committeeman. Uh, he worked quietly, uh, often off stage. He was often the person given the duty of writing up what a committee had decided. The Declaration of Independence, in fact, is the world's most famous subcommittee report. He did not like public performance in the sense that we think of now. So there was an introverted na- uh, part of Jefferson. But what's so interesting about him is though he was introverted, though he often was quite eloquent in describing how he wanted to return to his farms and to his mountain and to Monticello, he was inexorably drawn to the political arena, uh, always seeking office. For a biblical 40 years, with, with the exception of maybe four, he was either in office or seeking it. Clearly, he was absolutely addicted to it, and yet couldn't quite admit it even to himself. There was a tension in his head and his heart between ambition and uh, quiet retirement. And ambition always won.
0: Okay, here's the highlights reel of his political career. After drafting the Declaration of Independence, he becomes governor of Virginia for a couple years then he becomes an ambassador to france when george washington is president jefferson comes back and serves in his cabinet as the first secretary of state but he ends up resigning over differences with other cabinet members like hamilton as we heard about last week he eventually runs for president at the same time as john adams and he comes in second which makes him adams vice president After one term of Adams being in office, Jefferson runs for president again, and he wins, and takes over the presidency. That's the very short version of Jefferson's path to the White House. By now you probably know that I like asking Julie Miller, the historian at the Library of Congress, what it would be like to go on a blind date with these early presidents. I just, I find it a really helpful way to get a better sense of them, so... Here's what she said about Jefferson.
3: So, (laughs) (laughs) he certainly charmed some people. For example, here at the library, we have the papers of Margaret Bayard Smith, who was the wife of a newspaper publisher, Samuel Smith. And the, the newspaper was the National Intelligencer, and it was the newspaper that was affiliated with Jefferson's party. So the Smiths were smitten with Jefferson, and Margaret Bayard Smith says things like, When I met him, I took his hand and vibrated all over, you know. She doesn't (laughs) say exactly that, but she sort of conveys that that's kind of how she felt. And she says, he was so modest and so personable and so kind. And yet there I was in the presence of Thomas (laughs) Jefferson. (laughs) And then subsequently, she went to his house a couple of times, and she describes how charming and friendly he was and how hospitable he was and his married daughter lived with him. And again, their hospitality was made possible by the labor, the, you know, the coerced labor of enslaved people who had no choice but to serve them. So you know, that's, that's how these Virginians could be hospitable. And she describes how Jefferson gave her a tour of his library and um, took her on a, a carriage ride through you know, his lovely grounds around his house. She complained that he drove too fast, that sort of thing. So he probably would have been fun, right, in a sense, because he was interested in many, many, many things. Um, he had a very, very, very interesting house in a beautiful setting. I would get away from him <laughs> as fast as possible. I, I why? I don't think he's a good catch, and in fact... <laughs> 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 you could I, do a lot not? better. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Really, though, why would he? He um, was not always truthful, Thomas Jefferson. He said sometimes said things behind people's backs that were not very nice, and he could be a little tricky. He was very different from Washington. Washington was really a man of candor in many respects. Jefferson was not. Jefferson was really a politician. Washington was a politician, too, but Washington was all about, like, leading by the quality of his character, sort of. Whereas Jefferson was president at a time when the parties, while still not officially parties, they were still what people were calling factions in a sense, but they were much more developed, and he was very much a creature of his party, very interested in undermining the other party, and even Mm -hmm. though in his inaugural address he said, we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists, he didn't mean it. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't. You know, He basically felt that his people should come out on top, and the other people should not. So no, I I don't think, I think you'd go on a date with him, it would be really fun, and you wouldn't go again. I think you'd spend a little time with him, and maybe you would feel that there were layers and layers of things to know about him, not all of which perhaps you would like.
0: So let's begin peeling back those layers, and one of the first ones we'll look at is the splintering of political factions. You know how I said before that Jefferson resigned from being Washington's Secretary of State? Well, that's because he's already clashing with people like Alexander Hamilton, who's running the Treasury under George Washington. If you've been listening to the soundtrack of Hamilton the Musical, then a lot of this is probably very familiar to you.
4: Sir Life,
5: liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We fought for these ideals we shouldn't settle for less. These are wise words, enterprising men quote 'em. Don't act surprise you guys,
0: cause I wrote 'em. This is Annette Gordon Reed, a professor at Harvard Law and a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer, talking about Jefferson's beef with Hamilton.
5: He did not like Hamilton's um uh, financial plan. To uh assume state's debts, that the federal government would do that, he did not like the fact that Hamilton thought that the President should serve for life on good behavior and that the Senate should serve for life on good behavior, even though the person would be elected. Jefferson thought it was too much like a monarchy that you should have you should have regular elections. Hamilton wanted something very much like Great Britain. And Jefferson said, this is a chance for us to do something completely new. These were two positions that were not reconcilable. Hamilton persuaded Washington that his way was better. And Jefferson sort of found himself on the losing end of a lot of battles in the you know, cabinet battles. And so he just left. He resigned his office. 1793, he made the decision that he was going to resign and go back to Monticello, and that's what he did. And claimed that he was out of public life, but I think he was kind of, you know, he was uh, lying in wait uh, for his chance uh, to be president, which he eventually became.
0: Jefferson worries that the whole system they set up isn't working. It's supposed to be a republic of the people, and he thinks it's starting to look too aristocratic and too much like a monarchy. He ends up eventually referring to his own presidential election as the Revolution of 1800.
1: Uh, Jefferson has a gift uh, for exaggeration and hyperbole, which is famous, uh, and particularly now that we love Hamilton so much, uh, it's it's hard to understand how uh, he could have had such fear and animosity. Uh, Anyway, he thought of it as a transformative moment of both returning to 1776, getting it right, purging the United States of high Federalist tyranny and despotism.
0: That was Peter Onuf, one of the hosts of the Backstory podcast, which is a great history podcast to listen to, and a Jefferson scholar at the University of Virginia. As president, Jefferson does even subtle things to set a new tone for the role. Remember how in the first episode about George Washington, Julie Miller talked about how he was trying to make sure the Europeans took him seriously? Well, keep that in mind as you listen to the story about Jefferson. There's this story about how a British ambassador, Anthony Mary, comes over with his wife for a diplomatic visit.
3: So, um... Anthony Mary dresses himself up in his, like, special diplomatic jacket or whatever, and James Madison takes him over to meet the President, because he's going to be presented to the President, right? So they arrive in the White House, which was called the President's House at the time, which is kind of a wreck, you know, it's not, like, totally built, and they can't find him. So Madison and Mary are kind of standing there, you know, and like, you know, they don't really know what to do. And Mary thinks he's going to be met with some kind of pomp, you know, there's going to be like a reception and people are going to be standing around and he'll be introduced to this one and that one. And there's just nothing, he's just standing there. So then he sees Jefferson, Jefferson kind of like wanders into the room, you know, as if he wasn't even expecting him, and he's wearing like old slippers and sort of raggedy looking pants and stuff. And then, you know, they're kind of standing uncomfortably in the hallway. and. It's incredibly awkward, just incredibly awkward. So, anyway, so then the insults continue. So they, you know, Mary and his wife are invited to a dinner, and they don't make a place for them to sit, and no one walks his wife into the dinner, you know. So, they, you know, they have to, like, just scramble around and find a place to sit at the dinner. So after that, Mrs. Mary won't go to any more dinners. She, you know, they, they stay in Washington for years, and Mrs. Mary won't go to any more dinners. <laughs> and it's like a scandal and he writes home and he says, you know, I can't believe this guy like he he must be doing this on purpose to shame me and he was. I mean, he was. That's what he was doing. He so it was purposeful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, right. So, on one hand, you know, the thing that's interesting about this is that Jefferson wanted to promote the idea that the United States is a republic. It does not have a court, it does not have a king and Jefferson liked the idea of what he called pell-mell. In other words, the idea that in these kinds of diplomatic functions, you know, everyone's going to just sit where they like and there isn't going to be, there aren't going to be, you know, so many rules about who visits who first and who walks who into what room and whose wife sits where and this and that. So in 1803, Jefferson tried to kind of write out what his principles about all this were. In this document, this is Jefferson's handwriting. Beautiful handwriting. Very small. And this document is called Canons of Etiquette. In other words, these are his rules. And basically what he's saying is, you know... Hang on, let me get it. So he makes a couple of rules just to kind of clear things up. He says a couple things. One of the things he says, point two here, he says, when brought together in society, all are perfectly equal, whether foreign or domestic, titled or untitled, in or out of office. And the thing about the clothes is also very, very interesting because Jefferson was known to have very fancy French clothing because of the time that he had spent in France as U.S. minister to France. And there was a, there's a famous portrait of him dressed in a very frilly shirt. And he, in fact, loved all sorts of fancy French things and owned them and used them. But when he met the British minister, he wore his rundown slippers and his raggedy clothes. And he was kind of making a point. He was saying, this is a republic. We don't stand on ceremony here. This is how we do it here.
0: Part of what's interesting, though, is that in some other notable ways, Jefferson exercised a lot of power as president. It's during his first term that the Louisiana Purchase happens. This is where the US buys basically the middle third of what's now the United States from France, well, from Napoleon in particular. This is land that includes what's now Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, Montana, Colorado, Wyoming. At the same time, on the international front, Napoleon is waging war across Europe, and Europe is a mess. Jefferson ends up trying to keep America out of all of this. But he's struggling. Here's Peter Onuf again.
1: The big thing to keep in mind is that America is always at war, or the threat of war, during that entire first uh, quarter century of the New Republic's history. And Jefferson is a... Is, uh, seeks to negotiate his way through those dangers and, um, and has mixed success. It's hard to stay out of those wars. He is in many ways that he wouldn't like to acknowledge an ally of Hamilton's in constructing a fiscal military state capable of preserving the United States in a dangerous world. Uh, Jefferson was as much a big government guy as any Hamiltonian when it came to foreign affairs. He had to be. It was that kind of world.
0: Here's John Meacham on how Jefferson reshapes the office.
2: Well, he broadened the the powers of the office remarkably. Uh, He was a, uh, a strong chief executive. He, by buying Louisiana the way he did, he created a precedent that... Jackson, Lincoln, FDR all drew on in times of crisis. Uh, The presidency was stronger when he left it than he found it, and one would not have bet on that uh, given his political leanings were for a weaker central government until he held executive power. He was against executive power until he had it, uh, basically. But the presidency was immeasurably strengthened by Jefferson's years And the examples of that are the purchase of Louisiana, the imposition of an embargo to try to avoid war with Britain, and um, also the idea that an executive and the, the, the role of the state was to explore and to be more culturally engaged. So the Lewis and Clark expedition was something that was undertaken in the Jefferson presidency. So he saw the presidency not merely as a political office but as a cultural one.
0: We're going to take a little detour here to talk about Jefferson's interest in science, exploration, and food. It may seem a little strange to sandwich this in between our discussion of his presidency and his legacy with slavery, but this is another part of who he is that shaped his personal and presidential decisions. His interest in science and exploration is a large part of what motivates him during his presidency to commission the Lewis and Clark Expedition, where a small group of Army volunteers set off to explore and chart the American West. We can also see how Jefferson's decision-making as president took a decidedly scientific approach. Many of his papers are full of tables and charts and lists. That was the way he thought through decisions, by listing out numbers of soldiers or numbers of ships. And now to food. Both John Meacham and Julie Miller already mentioned Jefferson's love for the finer things in life, and much of this stemmed from his time in France. Part of what's complex and interesting is how he wanted the presidency to be less aristocratic, and yet he personally had very high-minded tastes. I spoke with Joe Yonin, the Washington Post food editor, about this part of his character.
6: Some criticized him during certain points of his life for being maybe too interested in what the French had to offer. I'll, I'll use wine as, a, as an example. Before Jefferson went to France, he, like many of his contemporaries, primarily drank Madeira and port and other really strong, high alcohol wines. And when he went to France, he really became enamored of this more sophisticated, more complex, lighter wine. And and that was true throughout his life. When he died, the wine cellar at Monticello had, you know, thousands of bottles of wine, and they were almost exclusively from southern France. He brought back hundreds of vines and cuttings from dozens of grape varieties in Europe. And he had this fantasy that he would plant them all um, at Monticello and they would take off and bear fruit and he could would be a vintner. Well, that didn't really work out that way, um, but he did become quite a connoisseur of wine and he bought what I think today would be considered possibly scandalous amounts of wine when he was president. Now, this was out of his own money, but I read one estimate that over the course of his his administration, he spent about $11,000 on wine, and that in today's dollars, that would be $175,000, <laughs> um, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. I dare say that Barack Obama did not spend $175,000 of his own money on wine um, while he was president. <laughs> Um, you yeah. know, one other thing about Jefferson that really fascinated me when it came to food, and, and by s- by many accounts, actually, he loved vegetables more than meat. And in that way, he was really ahead of his time. You know, you think of this trend now toward vegetables at the center of the plate and meat used as a, a garnish, and Jefferson was talking about those things In his day, there was there was one quote that I thought was really interesting where he wrote to his doctor in 1819, quote, I have lived temperately eating little animal food and that not as an aliment so much as a condiment for the vegetables which constitute my principal diet. Now, that's something that you could hear a chef like Dan Barber at Blue Hills um, in New York say today he He planted this really incredible garden at Monticello that was a, he called it his kitchen Terrace garden, <laughs> but it was a thousand feet long. So when you think about a thousand feet, that's three football fields long. and he grew uh, three hundred and thirty varieties of vegetables there. The garden was primarily for his experiments. you know he was he took detailed notes on. Um, which varieties did better and which did worse. And and he, again, he was ahead of his time. He was um, promoting the eating of tomatoes uh, long before most people believed that they weren't poisonous. Jefferson was seen in public um, eating a tomato, and it was a scandal.
0: Do you get the sense at all that, that these interests of his opened up the culinary... I don't know, vision of America in some way.
6: You know, there's there's some debate about specific things that Jefferson might have introduced to America. Like there are myths that he introduced vanilla and uh, um, macaroni, which was sort of the preferred term for all pasta, um, was macaroni at the time. Um, and that, I think those have been debunked, but he was one of the, he was certainly one of the first people to make and talk about ice cream. And he brought a pasta-making machine home with him from Italy. Um, He had a a wide-ranging curiosity. You know, when he traveled, he wanted to see things being made, and he he wondered if he might be able to make them, too, at home. So he apparently stayed up all night when he traveled to Italy to watch them make Parmesan cheese. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I find that really interesting. I think he was a lifelong learner. He he was really curious about the world and um and wanted to experience that.
2: All
0: roads in the study of Jefferson though eventually lead us back to his relationship to slavery and to those words life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
4: Jefferson is ordering uh, carpets from France and books and more books and more books and French wine. It's being paid for by buying and selling human beings. And and I don't know, you know, how, how you explain that. Uh, but I think it's it's something that it, the American people should think about. I mean, because it's partially the contradiction of American culture. The, the contradiction of American society. That we believe in liberty and equality, but we have a harder time practicing.
0: This is Paul Finkelman, author of the book Slavery and the Founders.
4: He buys and sells human beings throughout his life. He punishes slaves for misbehavior by selling them away from their families. And he writes in, in the only book he wrote, Notes on the State of Virginia. He writes a scientific defense of racism and a scientific defense of slavery. Uh, He he essentially says it's okay to sell husbands from wives, wives from husbands, children from parents. He says they they don't love each other the way we, meaning white people, love each other. So we have this gigantic, enormous contradiction between a philosophy of liberty and a man who is, uh, well, not physically cruel, he doesn't have his slaves beaten, is emotionally incredibly cruel to his own slaves and, in fact, owns his own children.
0: Thomas Jefferson fathers six children by slave Sally Hemings, though only four survive past infancy. During the time of his presidency, there are some reports of his relationship with her, but Jefferson never publicly addresses the rumors. Fast forward to present day, and most historians take the relationship between Jefferson and Sally Hemings as pretty uncontested fact, given the historical records they've looked through and some of the recent DNA testing of ancestors. During his life, Jefferson owns more than 600 slaves, and only a few of those does he ever free, even in his will.
4: Between 1780 and 1810... Uh, the free black population, the non-slave population in Virginia, grew from about 2,000 people to over 30,000 people. That enormous growth in free blacks came from individual slave owners, the neighbors of Thomas Jefferson, emancipating their own slaves, setting their slaves free, making conscious decisions to sacrifice their own economic high standard of living because it's immoral to own human beings. Thomas Jefferson was not one of those people. George Washington kept his slaves all his life, but he also gave them land to work. He stopped, you know, monitoring them the way masters did, prepared them for freedom, and then when Jeff Washington died, he freed every one of his slaves and gave every one of them land. Um, Thomas Jefferson didn't do that. I think you can embrace Jefferson for many reasons. Um, He is the author of the Declaration of Independence. Um, He is a scientist who pushes for more science. He articulates notions of separation of church and state, which are very important. And And I have no problem embracing him for that and honoring him for that. But at the same time, not only his personal life, but his public life is one that is adamantly pro-slavery. And, and I think the tragedy is, is because he was so famous, and because he was who he is, he's someone who could have done something that would have mattered. Jefferson was the leader who could have said, we Virginians must begin to end slavery. If you go through Jefferson's writings, you can find lots of statements where he says that slavery is wrong, where he says that, that this is not a good idea. And then you have to ask yourself, this is a man who is willing to risk his life to fight the greatest military power on earth. He says in the Declaration that he, he offers his life his fortune and his sacred honor for American liberty to fight the British. But he can't figure out how to lift a finger to end slavery.
0: I asked Eckward and reed how critical Jefferson's contemporaries would have been of him, and the fact that he wrote all men are created equal and yet was a slaveholder
5: he at the, At the time, we see him as very reactionary and conservative today, the way people portray him, but at the time, in his the mindset, the image was of an anti slavery person. And there were some people who thought it was hypocritical, obviously that he was a slave owner but I think the more predominant feeling was that this was the system he was born into, and he spoke out against it, and that he believed that eventually things would go you know that things would would change. I mean, the real sort of criticism of Jefferson and slavery comes more near the end of his life when the sectional crisis heats up in Missouri, uh, the Missouri crisis in 18 uh, 19, when the decision about was whether or not Missouri was going to come into the Union as slave state or free state, and things divide along sectional lines. Then there, I think there begins to be much more criticism of slaveholders because it's open. Uh, the conflict is much more open at that point.
0: I asked both Annette and Paul what they think about the word hypocrite to describe Jefferson. That's a word you hear a lot today in reference to the difference between his public words and his personal actions. But neither one of them found that word particularly fitting. Interestingly, though, they had different reasons why they took issue with it.
4: So it's more than hypocrisy. It's kind of it's kind of a blindness and dishonesty that develops and helps create the culture of slavery and racism that, in some ways, uh, we're still trying to overcome today.
5: I think the hypocrisy charge is sort of a shorthand way of saying that you know something about Jefferson. Do you know what I mean? It's like a it's become a a, a trope. It's sort of an easy way to make a comment about him without really thinking about uh, what's going on in his life. So I think he's no more hypocritical than the other members of the founding generation. We fixate on him really because of the Declaration. All men are created equal. Madison didn't say that, but he held slaves. Marshall, other people did as well. So it was a hypocritical age, I would say, if if you must use that term. Mm. And he was you know but I, I think that we have that feature uh that's a feature that's not unknown to to most of us in everybody's life maybe nothing so big as slavery but surely um there are things where we have a particular intellectual you know beliefs about but we're not emotionally equipped to follow through on we we say we believe in you know one thing but you know we we don't live that way
0: I'm sure there are people who've asked you if you like Jefferson. <laughs> Do you, mm-hmm. What's, what's your, yesterday, what's your answer to <laughs> What is the answer you tend to give people when they ask you that?
5: Well, I tend to give people, sometimes I like him and sometimes I don't. <laughs> you know, as a <laughs> subject, I think he's endlessly fascinating. Um, as a person, I mean, as much as you could know a person who, you know, died centuries ago, uh, I... I I don't think, I think the saving grace for me for him is that I don't detect malice in his personality, uh, cluelessness, yes, uh, a person who, you know, was had the prejudices of his time about race, the prejudices of many uh, people today, but I don't. Perceive him as a malicious person. The way I read about some slaveholders and some people in that era. Um, so, on balance, I would say the most I can say is some things I respect and admire, and other things I just hate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh it's ambivalent. I I suppose would be the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. But I, but as a subject, I don't think there's anybody uh, more interesting. Hamil the Hamilton moment, non- notwithstanding. I don't think, uh, there's nobody who made more contributions in different places than he did. I mean, he's all over American history and I, I just don't think it's possible to understand, you know, how we started if you don't grapple with his life. He wrote on so many different areas, um, thought about so many different things, science, religion, race, politics, government, where African Americans fit in uh, the American polity. We don't like his answer, but the fact that he suggested it would be a struggle, I think is pretty (laughs) useful to us, because in some degrees, in some ways, he was right. It hasn't been easy uh, for blacks and whites to live together as equals in this country, and that's one of the reasons people people damn him for suggesting that, that it wasn't going to be possible, but it was, not, it was not a notion that was far-fetched, because we're still grappling with these issues today about black citizenship. I mean, I studied his life because it's a way of talking about most of the central questions uh, that Americans grapple with. You know, how, how do we live together here? in a In a multiracial multicultural society, he didn't think we could do it, but I think his his life you know invites us to think about this and to and try to figure figure out that question that he could never he could never uh answer
0: That brings us to the end of this week's episode. There's obviously so much more we could have discussed on these topics and on others. Like, we didn't really get to talk about freedom of religion or about how Jefferson founded the University of Virginia. There's just, there's so much. So, if you want to continue the conversation with other listeners of this podcast, find us on Instagram and Twitter at presidential underscore WP. All week, we'll be exploring more of Jefferson's complex legacy. I'm sure many of you will have a lot to say about both the best and the worst of what he has left this country. As Peter Onuf said...
1: Uh, he's, a, he's a wonderful guy to worry about, and probably the anti-Jefferson talk has been just as important as the kind of uh, reverential worship of the great Democratic icon in keeping his name uh, and fame alive. Uh, because with Jay Jefferson you get both sides, you can't get away from uh, this uh, complicated uh, seemingly contradictory legacy. They're both there. It's not as if you have to accept one at the expense of the other. In fact, if you do, you're not going to have the nearly complicated enough understanding of this thing that we call democracy which has its very dark side but is also of course the only hope we have for what we take to be a liberal and just regime and a world at peace and all that good stuff Uh, it's all there
0: Special thanks to this week's guests John Meacham, Julie Miller Peter Onuf, Paul Finkelman and Annette Gordon-Reed Music for the podcast is by Dave Westner. We're only three episodes in, and I've, I'm pretty sure I've already said the words Pulitzer Prize-winning author like 20 times. So I'm going to put together a reading list for this podcast where we'll highlight books by all the great guests in our series. Keep an eye out for that soon on WashingtonPost.com. Just a little side note on last week's episode. A couple astute listeners got in touch with me to point out that one of the buildings in the Library of Congress complex is named after John Adams. Now, it's not a monument or a memorial to him, but it is something, so I just wanted to mention that this week. Next week, of course, we'll be discussing James Madison. Have a great week. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment.
1: Women should have to vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves.
0: It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights.
1: For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person.
0: And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention.
4: There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled.
0: These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to the Constitutional podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional, or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.